I'm Dr. Fiona Lovely, and this is the Not Your Mother's Menopause podcast. I'm taking the taboos of menopause and perimenopause and bringing light to the dark. No bullshit, no shame. It's time for us to gain a new paradigm in female health, out with the old and in with the new, and I'm bringing fresh perspectives from someone in the arena. I've been practicing women's health for nearly 20 years, and I'm spilling the tea on what it means to live at midlife, knowing that the best is yet to come. I'm sharing my Gen X approach to living through this transition. Sassy, a bit sweary, and always honest. Tactical tips and instantly usable information is my aim. I hope to make you laugh and that you learn something new that helps you embrace the change. Together, we bring power to the Perry. Onward to the podcast. Hello, hello, Dr. Fiona Lovely here, and this is the Not Your Mother's Menopause podcast. I have a super conversation to share with you today that I did with uh, recently with a fellow Canadian. Uh, Nadine Araxi is an Armenian-Canadian writer and coach whose work explores womanhood, identity, parenting, ADHD, and the transformative power of storytelling. Her writing has appeared in Canadian publications such as Chatelaine, Maclean's Today's Parent and Canadian Geographic. Nadine finds inspiration in Toronto's diverse and vibrant neighborhoods where she lives with her two teenagers and a scaredy cat named Cookie. So what I'll tell you is, first of all, Cookie came for the conversation, as did my uh, ginger ninjas. So it prompted me to ask Nadine the question, are ADHD or neurodiverse people tend to be cat people? (laughs) You might be surprised by the answer to that. So this conversation is very excited about. It certainly um, was amazing to be a part of it. This information is so critical for women's health right now. Um, I have the conversation daily in my practice about whether or not the symptoms a woman is having at midlife could potentially be because of something like ADHD or some other neurodiversity. And I think we're recognizing just how, let's see, how do I say this? Infrequently, someone is neural normative, okay? Has a normal brain, whatever that means. I mean, the word normal needs to just F-O and die as far as I'm concerned, but... uh, (laughs) Who apparently has spicy this morning. Anyways, um, I blame the holiday break coming up. <laughs> uh, Nadine and I talked about what it was like for her to have the diagnosis of ADHD at 35. And years later, when she opted for medication to help treat the symptoms of ADHD, she experienced not just relief, but grief over the amount of time lost to the symptomatology of being neurodiverse. And so I really want you, if you feel like that's you, please listen in. This conversation has is packed with goodies for you. So we talked about what symptomatology, uh, it, what, what, what ADHD looks like for women, especially at midlife, because, you know, Gen, Gen X is essentially the lost generation for ADHD. And Nadine talks about this because, we were looking for hyperactivity. Um, 
when we were kids. And, and that is something that presents in boys, but typically not in girls. The hyperactivity that girls with neurodiversity experience is inside the brain. It's with our thinking. Like raise your hand if you are an overthinker, if you are riddled with anxiety because you feel like you're not getting enough done. I mean, I think this is going to relate to a lot of, a lot of women will be, uh, feel like this is um, information they can relate to. So uh, one of my favorite parts of this conversation was talking about the mimicry between ADHD and a trauma response brain. Um, I know this is something I've been looking into for myself, and I see it a lot in my friends, my family, and certainly uh, my patients. So um, I, I invite you to tune into that part of the conversation in particular, but also um, we talked about how the pandemic has contributed to the trauma that has affected our brains. We talked about women and perfectionism and how that feeds into this neurodiversity. And it was a fascinating conversation, even how perimenopause has played a role for Nadine and for likely others. So um, I will leave Nadine's website in the show notes so that you can go and check her out. Um, I just, I couldn't be more thrilled to bring this information to you because I think it's going to, I think it's going to help a lot of women feel understood and heard. And I think uh, you're going to experience the relief and potentially the grief that Nadine talks about. So. Now, I'm sure you've heard of AG1 or Athletic Greens, not just on this podcast. There's good reason for it. It's a comprehensive all-in-one nutritional powder that helps fill the gaps in your diet, essentially providing some nutritional insurance, if you will, on a daily basis, specifically supporting immunity, energy, recovery, and gut health. It has 75 highly absorbable Vitamins and minerals, high-quality whole food sourced ingredients, including adaptogenic herbs, probiotics, prebiotics, and medicinal mushrooms. It comes straight to your home, and if you order through our specific podcast... Okay, today on the podcast, I'm thrilled to have somebody that I met earlier this year in a writer's group, Nadine Araxi. She's here from Toronto and to talk to us about ADHD. I'm really excited to have you here, Nadine. Thank you for saying yes. Oh, you're so welcome, Fiona. It's so great to be on your show. I feel like we're going to have a lot to talk about and I hope your listeners uh get something good out of it. Yes, yes, absolutely. I'm sure they will, because this is a topic we have not covered on the podcast. 111 episodes to this point, and this will be probably 113, I think, will be the right number for this. But it's about time that we're talking about, because I've noticed, having practiced for 20 years, I've noticed about the last 
really since the pandemic that I'm getting a lot more questions about ADHD for women. And I I had to have this conversation. So I'm so glad you literally appeared in my world. It's like perfect timing. (laughs) So I have so many questions for you, but let's set the groundwork a little bit. Sure. Do you mind sharing your story with my listeners? Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to actually circle right back to where you started. Um, So my own journey with ADHD, like has been both personal and profound. I was not diagnosed until 35. Um, And the reason I sought diagnosis at that point in my life is that I had been, you know, a certain kind of personality my whole life, um, missing deadlines, losing things, kind of scattered, but fun. So fun. The kind of person people want to have around, the kind of person who just blurts out something and then kind of, you know, disarms people in a new setting uh, because I'm going to overshare something personal. And I hadn't really put a lot of thought to it. I just had internalized it as I am bad. I'm not as good as everyone else. Uh, You know, not really understanding why it took me longer to complete a task than my colleagues. Um, Not really understanding why I was missing deadlines and things like that. And just kind of shrug, like it was always a shrug. It was like, oh, well, I guess that's who I am. Not really realizing how much accountability um, and power I had over that story and how I was seeing myself. Um, I went to the doctor at 35, you know, filled out the little questionnaire. And the hilarious thing is I only realized that this might be a thing because I was spending a lot of time on Twitter at the time. So this is back in like 2009, I want to say. And spending a lot of time on Twitter where a lot of journalists and parenting bloggers and people like that were also chit-chatting. And someone was sharing ADHD stuff and it came across my eyes and I was like, this sounds like me. But, you know, I'm a Gen X woman we are considered sort of the lost generation of ADHD because the typical thought you get when someone says ADHD, we tend to think about a disruptive boy in a classroom and not the daydreaming girl. And so I think what we're seeing now is suddenly an awakening of women going, maybe there's a reason I am being so hard on myself. Maybe there's a reason I'm unable to do all the things. Um, Continuing on my story, I want to say that when I did that questionnaire, it was like 10 out of 10. And my doctor was like, oh, okay, yeah, you've got something. But also, I am high functioning. Like a lot of Gen X women I know, uh, I am able to make a lot of things happen. So I do want to caution because we live in a system that is unequal. And I, I know other parents will be nodding their heads in agreement that women take take on way more. We take on way more of the caregiving roles. We take on the birthday party planning and remembering the vaccine schedule and all these, oh, we're out of toilet paper. And so we've constantly got this running to-do list in our minds. Mm -hmm. So if you recognize yourself at any point in this conversation and what I'm saying, you know, I will say the differences between an ADHD, a woman with ADHD at our age and a typical, you know, we say neurotypical versus um, neuroatypical or neurodiverse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would, I would say check in and, you know, it's a great time to talk to a professional like yourself or go see your doctor because 
The difference is where it's crippling and it's affecting your standard of living and your day to day versus, you know, you, this week, you just had a bad week. And, um, and, and that's totally normal, right? Like we all take on too much. And in an ADHD brain, we tend to overestimate how much we can get done and underestimate how long things take. So there's a real executive function issue in terms of time blindness, time management, um, you know, planning, forethought, all those things. Um, and uh, gosh, we're talking about so many things. Um, yes. You know, but so please, so really on. it's a it's an issue of it's primarily a frontal lobe issue with executive function that hinders your day-to-day, in some cases quite extremely. Um I will say that over the years, uh you know, I developed various strategies to manage my ADHD. For me, the reason to pursue diagnosis at age 35 was I had a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And so all the coping mechanisms I had developed in my life to that point were out the window. I just couldn't, all the things we all need for our health, right? Exercise, sleep, drink enough water, make sure you eat, you know, all these things. As a mom, you're eating like, you know, the peel of an apple and some toast crusts. And so, you know. In the shower, in the shower. (laughs) In the shower, (laughs) A little baby mum-mums like dipped in <laughs> Nutella or something. That was a favorite. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, when I was diagnosed, um, my first pass, I'm a journalist, I'm a writer, researcher, editor, uh, was to read and research. Uh, so just getting a basic understanding of my ADHD. And then I kind of got into therapy and eventually coaching, which I'd love to talk more about those two at some point today. Um, And those things have truly helped me with self-awareness, number one, and self-acceptance, number two, which I believe are the two biggest keys to ADHD management. Mm, Say more. Well, no one is harder on themselves than an ADHD brain. We tend to have a lot of thoughts, especially like in women, the hyperactivity doesn't show often outwardly. It's in the mind. So it's yes. that rumination late at night. It's the overthinking something that happened and how it could go differently. It's the overthinking something before you even start. And so shining a light on ourselves understanding that our brains are wired differently and we may just need different approaches. We have different learning styles. We have different reading styles. We have different, all kinds of aspects of our life that need just a slight tweak to be accessible for us as neurodiverse people is huge because then it's not about, I am bad. It is, oh, the system is not designed for me and let's figure out how to advocate for myself, for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So that's something I'm hugely passionate about. It's something I write about. It's something um, I champion at work, like very much understanding that in every job that we all do, having an awareness of neurodiversity as, as a, you know, a huge segment of the population, you know, they say it's like one in eight or something like that. Um, just understanding that will help us all make a more accessible world. And then going to the self-acceptance piece, it's, again, that, like, I am not bad. The system is not designed for me. And what am I going to do about it now? 
what now is mm -hmm. the most powerful question for an ADHD brain because we tend to go really big. I mean, the brilliant gifts of ADHD are creative problem solving, our ability to make connections rapidly. And so, you know, sometimes we start a project, we have gone so big, you know, we are already, you know, think about, let's use writing a song as an example, yeah. right? Like, okay, I want to write a song. Well, the ADHD brain has daydreamed her way to, I am the next Taylor Swift. And then what is that going to mean about how I take care of my kids and my life? And, uh, and then it's like, oh, I'm not even going to start writing that song. <laughs> oh my God. You just described my entire life. <laughs> I joke that all the fun people have it. <laughs> 100%. And this is what's fascinating. When you said one in eight, I was like, it's got to be more than that. Like, it's yeah. got to be more frequent than that. Because when I started, uh, I have a family member who's just newly diagnosed. And, um, you know, like a, an appropriate human being would, when I was trying to educate myself about what they were experiencing, I went to TikTok. And I started to see these videos on the neurodiverse, from the neurodiverse people or the neurospicy people. I love that term. I too, love that, one. that term. It's yes. so good, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and I realized, number one, how many of my patients displayed these very same uh, symptoms, signs, whatever word you want to use there, traits. I like the word traits. And I'm somewhere on the scale, too, of neurospicy, which just delights sure. me. Because it started to make sense of all the things that I struggled with when I was a kid. But I was very focused on certain things. But I was the kid that was, when when Fiona puts her mind to it, she does great. You know, that, mm, that this yes, is what they said. talk about that, yeah. That's what they said in our report cards, right? Now, uh, and somehow that was a bad thing. But now we know that to be part of this neurodivergency. Sure. We would yeah. recognize that as hyperfocus, right? ADHD, it, we think of it as a, as a deficit of attention. And actually, we're very good at paying attention to things that interest us. It's the boring stuff that we really struggle with. It's not rocket science for me to do my expense report. But I'm going to put it off until the you know, company accountant sends me that email like, this is the deadline. Oh, it's do or die. <laughs> oh, I might fine. even <laughs> let it go an extra day at that point. Yeah. So yeah, hyperfocus is a big one. I want to touch on TikTok because TikTok has really helped a lot of people with self-acceptance and self-awareness but i would caution that you know that's people talking about their personal experiences like just validate it with a health professional because you know there's a lot of pseudoscience out there as well and we know that the advent of social media and uh you know applications like tiktok are creating adhd like uh behaviors they're retraining our brains to want snackable things so adhd is recognized there's two ways of looking at it. One is a deficit of dopamine in the brain. So that neurotransmitter, that's like the reward center of your brain. And um, we are constantly trying to get hits of dopamine. And so we do that by, you know, like every time you swipe to new video on TikTok, for example, and it's exactly what you want, it's like ding, 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 ding. Um, and so we're constantly trying to wake ourselves up. And as we go through this conversation, I'd like to talk about medication because I think it's really important for addressing that fact. Another way to look at it, to your point about is it one in eight or is it one in four, yeah. um, there are professionals like Dr. Gabor Mate, who people you know have mixed feelings about, but I, I'm somewhat of a fan. How could um, they? 
I adore him. I know. I know. We're, gonna, I know. we're, we're fan clubbing over here. Okay, so good. you're good. Carry on. Good. I can also <laughs> recognize, you know, no one person is like the yeah. person, but he has ADHD. Three of his children have ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a brilliant book called Scattered Minds talking mm-hmm. about ADHD. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that comes up uh, is like this idea that ADHD folks are hypersensitive. And so if we look at the research around hypersensitivity, there's some estimates that are like 20 to 25% of the population are hypersensitive. So what does that mean? Well, um, and again, vagus nerves, like some people are into vagus, vagal, polyvagal theory. Some people debunk it. Um, we are so very much fans. With, I am this. very much a fan. But okay, we're all of big you fans on this podcast, so carry you on. You <laughs> can take it with a grain of salt. Do your own research, yeah. come to your own conclusions, be a critical thinker. That's, I think, the best way to be. Um, so in an ADHD brain, the, the theory there is um, that any sort of neurodiversity, we have an overtuned vagus nerve and therefore we have almost an emotional allergy so in adhd brains it looks like you know difficulty with emotional regulation and um as well as difficulty with emotional regulation it's like this um rejection sensitivity dysmorphia some people call it or there's various ways to, to refer to it but we take rejection harder than the average person, which makes us more likely to avoid situations mm. that are challenging or I've got a big project. I don't know how to execute it. I'm going to look stupid. Therefore, I'm going to put it off and put it off and put it off. One of the pluses in my personal experience from that is you become very good at making friends because you need friends to do your homework when you're in school. You need friends to help you do that spreadsheet you're avoiding when you're in the workforce. And so you become a person, and this isn't true for everyone, I just wanna clarify it's my personal experience, but for me, it's been making friends and having buddies, where whether it's accountability buddies or you're good at numbers, I suck at numbers, I'm good at words, you suck at words, let's work together. You end up building a lot of bridges. The other super huge plus of that is you tend to have a lot of empathy for people's differences because you know what it's like to live in a body that doesn't function always to where everyone else seems to be functioning. So I will I will say one more thing and then let you jump in. It's when I was 35, I was working at an, as an editor on a team of editors um, and we were creating content for a, uh, a website that had a, a popular newsletter that talked about the sweet spots that were opening in various cities across Canada. And my colleagues were very much able to deliver content when they were supposed to. They had their calendars planned. They had, you know, they were not getting um, messages asking, when is this coming? Um, but I did constantly, and it felt like it took me so much more time. Um, and so I realized when a manager flagged, like, maybe you don't want to be doing this job, you know, maybe you don't want to be an editor, maybe you just want to be a writer. And I had to evaluate for myself whether that was true. Now, yeah, it's true. I do prefer writing to editing, although that's changed over the years as I've gotten better as an editor. But um I knew that I wanted to be in that job. I loved the job. I loved my colleagues. I loved the work I was doing and the impact it was having. And so then I had to say, 
Well, I think first I came home and my husband at the time, now my ex-husband, uh, was like, uh, you know, we're not having another maternity leave to address the fact that you're annoyed at work. <laughs> We've got two kids who are stopping. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Interesting. Well, you know, I, I, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of threads I want to pick up, but the one that's just that you just kind of, uh, suggested is I wonder how much being neurodiverse changes communication in relationships. (laughs) Yeah, it's, you know, that's where the self-awareness piece comes in, because if we're not self-aware, we build all these habits as workarounds. Um, and again, like I said, we make connections really fast. Sometimes we're talking about things at a at a level that the average person can't even follow, but we've already connected all the dots. So I don't yeah. know if you recognize that in your family member oh, yeah. or in yourself, but in it's myself, like, you're like, both. what? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what? Um, I remember, for example, being at the dinner table with the kids and my ex-husband and, you know, he used to say, it feels like you're not with us. And the truth was physically I was present, but mentally I was like, okay, and then we have to do this and then we have to do that. And you build a sort of hypervigilance around you're going to drop a ball and then you're going to feel crappy about yourself. And what, you know, like you're constantly running through the operations manual, the to-do list, the logistics, because you're weak at it. But as the the mom or the, you know, the partner who does those things in the household is not necessarily exclusive to women, but uh, you're that person. You're the one who does that. And you may or may not have tried to delegate to someone else in the household and it didn't meet your expectations. So we talked about before we jumped on this recording, perfectionism, and I'd love to talk uh, about that. Yes, please. Um, And so sometimes when you're a perfectionist, you just want it done a certain way. Now we know through the literature and the studies that perfectionism is a trauma response, that it's, you have learned, usually through your childhood experience, that you need to be perfect to get someone's love, affection, uh, praise. And so, or you, you felt, maybe you were made to feel that being perfect meant that everything would not fall apart in your household. So if you came from any sort of high conflict home, you know, you're also constantly observing who's going to go off, what is my role in that. Maybe I'll just, uh, you know, we call it fawning, uh, people pleasing, you start developing these behaviors to accommodate that. So there are lots of intersections between, let's say, PTSD, uh, you know, having, uh, you know, capital T trauma or lowercase t trauma mm-hmm. in your in your life at some mm-hmm. point. And mm-hmm. so we build these mechanisms to, you, you know, you've studied neuroscience, mm-hmm. the brain is designed to kind of keep you safe mm-hmm. and so we're constantly building habits that we believe keeping keep us safe mm-hmm. and they're adaptive at the time we build the habit mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. they can often become maladaptive over time mm-hmm. yes absolutely and I think um, just to talk about resources because I can hear uh, the women listening to this podcast 
going, I want to know more. Tell me more about that. So the two things that come to mind for me is certainly Gabor Mate's book on Scattered Minds. Scattered Minds, is it? Scattered Minds. And also Myth of Normal intersects some of that. So pick the one you like. Yeah. Myth of Normal is great for everyone, ADHD or not. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And let's talk about that trauma thing here and and more. But the other one that comes to mind is Pete Walker's book on complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Complex. Oh, it's so good. When you read it, you'll be just like, I'm mine's so highlighted and dog-eared. I sh- Anyways, we could go on. And I was listening to a podcast this week where the woman being interviewed said words that stopped me dead. Like I was driving, but if I hadn't been driving, I would have stopped dead in my tracks. She said productivity oh, is yeah. a trauma response. Sure. And I was like, yeah. oh shit, that too? <laughs> yes. How many of us derive our value from taking things off our to-do list? All of us. Let's just put that out there. In 20 years of practice, it's very rare that I see a woman. Well, listen, when a woman doesn't have those connections, she doesn't need someone like me. So I'm not going to see her, right? Yeah, that's a good point. I'm not sure. that. I mean, I remember years ago, this was probably my first year of practice. And I had a woman do a consult, a hormone consult with me. And I asked her, I said, tell me about your stress. She said, well, I don't really have any. And I did not believe her. I was like, girlfriend, you're hiding something. I'm like, I'm, I'm like interrogating the poor woman. I'm like, there's no way. And at that point I was, oh, I don't know, 32 or 33. And I just finished professional school. So the thought of, you know, having no stress was so incredibly foreign. <laughs> and oh, I man. still think about her to this day. I'm like, I wonder if she really didn't have any stress. Yeah, or is she just not aware of it? I have a friend who claims she doesn't experience imposter syndrome, which I, I'm also like, what? How is that possible? What, what's her secret? Are you a woman? You know? Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, stress is, I mean, you know, you've talked about this on the podcast before, but like stress is a choice. You have to do the thing you have a choice to be stressed about it or not. Now, that's very simplistic, and we know the reality is a lot more complex than that. But again, like coming back to the systems we live in, we know, and this is not a slight on anyone, but we know that they've traditionally been designed with one point of view, a neurotypical, fully able-bodied white man of a certain age, and our cities are built from that experience, mm-hmm. you know, our, our systems, our laws, yes. our schools, everything built through that lens. So yeah. now that we as women have a microphone, <laughs> watch out world. Mm-hmm. We literally have a microphone. <laughs> what would you like to say? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I think we have an opportunity to say, okay, it's always been this way. And our response to that has habitually been to turn on ourselves. I'm not doing enough. I'm not good enough. You know, we have all these enough statements. Or if you're ADHD, I'm too much for people. That's my oh. favorite. Or I'm too sensitive. You know, we, and you may have been given those messages from people who love you dearly and just don't understand you because they don't live in your brain and your body. Yeah. So getting to a point where we can say, okay, this is how it was designed. It's not working for me. How do I make it work for me? You know, in my coaching practice, because I also got into coaching through all this ADHD stuff, in my coaching practice, women are always like, why is it so hard? And that's not a useful question. Anything that ends in hard is not useful. It's more like, 
what can I do to make this easier? Who can I reach out to to help make this easier? Mm -hmm. And realizing that none of us are going through this alone, that every one of you listening will see yourself in something that I say somewhere, regardless Mm -hmm. of whether you're neurodiverse or not. And so it's really about figuring out collectively and individually, how do we make this easier? I mean, we figured out a lot of things. If I don't have time to go get groceries, I can order them on this thing and they're, <laughs> you know, they show up. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm showing my phone for those who are listening. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The right? casino in so, your pocket, your, your dopamine, your dopamine your device. Your dopamine <laughs> machine. Yeah. You know, another dopamine uh, machine, I call it the validation vending machine. Like it's mm-hmm. very much like Another thing that social media does when we're feeling low, you know, we might post a selfie and we want, uh, you know, we want some praise and we want because that also praise can be a big dopamine hit. And so uh, mm-hmm. and dopamine deficiency can lead to all kinds of addiction, social media addiction, one addiction to validation mm-hmm. intersects there. It can be addiction to information. As a journalist, you know, I am very addicted to reading news. And every time I read something, and it's important to remember from the neuroscience lens that we tend to seek information that validates a belief. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to believe you have ADHD, you can go on TikTok right now. Oh, yeah. And, and probably feel like, yeah, that's me. And so every one of us exhibits those, to your point, on a spectrum. We know, oh, everything's a spectrum, as it turns out, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, it's okay to identify somewhere on this spectrum. We do also in the community accept self-diagnosis to a point because getting diagnosed is so challenging and something a lot of us are working to change Mm -hmm. in Canada in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's tough. You'll go to your doctor. Your doctor has not been trained in ADHD. And getting those supports and those diagnoses and then the treatment plan, which, again, the medication has to be titrated. You know, it's not one size fits all. Mm-hmm. So, so that is a real challenge. So I would say to anyone listening who feels like, ding, 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 this, this sounds like me, like definitely go have that conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, some things I want to pull apart there. I found it really interesting, as I said, family member for me this year, uh, who's male, uh, went to his family doctor, filled out the form, the form in Canada here, there's a 10 question. I think it's 10 questions, is it not? I think it's 10 questions, yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's kind of a standardized form across the medical profession, as far as I'm aware. And depending on how you answer that uh, questionnaire, you potentially can end up with an ADHD diagnosis. Now, um, he went, he filled out the questionnaire, he scored 10 out of 10. The GP gave him a prescription right away and said, I'm going to send you to uh, psychiatry. Uh, Okay, so that all happened really fast. He was in to see the psychiatrist in a a couple of weeks. And um, but what was really interesting is he is well informed about um, the difference between, let's say, depression, anxiety, and ADHD. Mm-hmm. He felt he was better informed about it than even the psychiatrist was. Now, isn't yeah. that interesting? That is very interesting. Yeah. Uh, I have worked in the past with a phenomenal mental health professional named Christina Crow, who also has a podcast, Canadian um, uh 
social worker, therapist who works primarily in ADHD research, sits on the board of CADAC, just a phenomenal human being. And, um, you know, she says in her practice, she sees a lot of adults coming. It, the two ways in at this stage of our life we get diagnosed is our kid gets diagnosed with ADHD. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we know it's a it's a, uh, you know, it tends to be a hereditary trait. And Dr. Gabor Mate's um, opinion is that the sensitivity, the hypersensitivity is the uh, hereditary part. Um, or you come with anxiety or depression, and we know ADHD is a comorbidity disorder. Mm-hmm. And so your anxiety as an ADHD or a neurodiverse person often comes from that, what I talked about, that fear, that hypervigilance of, oh gosh, I'm going to drop a ball and then everyone's going to hate me. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone's going to think I'm stupid. And uh, the depression comes from like this sadness that is just like this life you could have had if your brain worked different. Mm-hmm. But maybe you're not conscious of the if my brain worked diff- differently part, right? You're not aware yet that you have a real condition that is making you feel sad. And there's also, you know, we're talking about, you know, serotonin. And this might be a great time to dive into perimenopause and menopause, yes. right? Yes, so yes. We're talking about hormones and neurotransmitters. Let's and, do it. And yeah. their impacts over time. And so, okay, I'm going to turn it to you. Yeah. What would you say are like the five main symptoms of perimenopause? Three to five. Okay. Uh, insomnia. Okay. Uh, anxiety. Uh-huh. Um, hot flashes. Uh-huh. Um, I'm trying to pick the right word. Sadness isn't the right word, but mood elevation difficulty is is how I've heard it stated. And a fifth one, uh, probably related to libido would be my guess. That's where I would put it in there. Now, look at those. They're all brain-based. They're all brain-based. They're all brain-based. So here's the thing I want to say to you when I was talking about the the 10 questionnaire. What was amazing to me was uh, every day I talk to women that go to their doctors for help with menopausal symptoms, as I just discussed, and they're told, you don't want to take those meds that, like, I'm talking about hormones now, so hormone replacement therapy, menopause hormonal therapy, yes. So if there was a standardized test that said, how many of these symptoms of menopause do you have? And our wonderful friend, uh, Andrea Donsky of We Are Morphous here in Canada, she has done the research on what are the 10 most common symptoms. I've talked about this in, in past podcasts. I think it's eight or nine out of the top 10 are all brain-based. Okay, but anyways, um, I'm kind of going off on a tangent because that just wow. totally makes sense. We are talking about ADHD today. <laughs> right. And but anyways... Who- doesn't get studied in the literature. It's women, oh, right? They're like, oh, they not. menstruate, so it's unpredictable, so we're just yes. not going to study them. Exactly, exactly. Now that's changing too, but um, but anyways, if a woman went and took this test and got 10 out of 10 on the menopausal symptoms, and she's still given a hard time about getting treatment for it. I mean, this is the world we're living in, right? Now you add this other layer on top of it. I mean, you, you just wouldn't see that happen with a, with a man. Apparently the cats are all coming to visit today. Oh, I love that. Hello, cat. Um, you wouldn't see that happen with a man. And I think the other thing is like, if I had asthma, yep. uh, 
you know, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be like, why are you taking medication? If I had diabetes, you wouldn't be like, why are you taking medication? But somehow when it comes to our mental health, we have stigmatized the need for medication when it's absolutely has, it's not like, yes, you can choose not to take it. And I spent 12 years trying to figure this out on my own. Yes. And so going back to your original, original point is that in the pandemic, where a lot of my coping mechanisms and the and the strategies and systems I had developed went away. Suddenly I'm working at home. I'm sitting on my butt all day. Yes. Uh, you know, those little um, dopamine hits I used to get from walking over to a colleague's desk and solving something quickly or just even having a casual com- conversation by the photocopy machine, like mm-hmm. that all went away. It did. My, uh, I wor- was lucky to work for Rogers Media and Rogers had this great gym in the building. And so colleagues would come to my desk and be like, are we going to the gym at lunch? So I had both accountability and mm-hmm. access to fitness. And we know fitness um, that just that boost of oxygen to the brain in the middle of your day, like it would make a meaningful difference for me. Oh my God, cat. Okay. For, for the people who cannot see this, I have a cat on the desk that's rubbing his butt on the microphone. I couldn't hear it. Thank you, husband. (laughs) So thanks. I appreciate it, babe. Okay, so the, the podcast, the uh, the podcast husband has showed up to get the cat out. I'm so podcast sorry. Podcast husbands are helpful. <laughs> yes, they are. I just text him like, God, ah, come get the cat. I got the cat. <laughs> but this is totally appropriate because we are talking about attention deficit. I know, and I think I've gone on a million tangents and distractibility. Talking, but I did but, take my medication today. <laughs> good. Well, what do you think when I ask you the question? Do you feel like you? perimenopause was part of the reason you were diagnosed at the time that you were? Um, I don't think so. Although, you know, post-birth hormones are a thing for sure. I think that, you know, at the time I was diagnosed was very much, I cannot, you, I added stuff to my plate. You know, I added mm-hmm. suddenly children and vaccination schedules and mm-hmm. and birthday mm-hmm. parties and did I get a gift or do did I plan for the loot bag? I added more than just what are we having for dinner and do we have enough toilet paper? Mm-hmm. And so suddenly the volume of things you mm-hmm. are accountable for on top of your workload, on top of being like interesting and planning date nights and being a good friend and a daughter and oh my god, uh, it's, it's so much manageable. It's yeah. yeah. And so if you are not good at managing your time or you have a habit of saying yes to everything because of people pleasing behaviors, that just like you're you're gonna either go to anxiety or depression and need a way to cope. Like that's just math, which I'm not good at by the way. But um Me neither. <laughs> so we'll just skip over that chapter. Yeah, we'll skip move over on. that. But I when I was I was about forty seven when I went on uh medication where I sought medication as a solution. And um, what I want to say about that is that, mm. yeah, was I having night sweats at that point? Yeah. Was that impacting my sleep and therefore my cognition the next day mm-hmm. and my ability to cope and my emotional regulation, which are already, you know, challenged by a neurodiverse brain? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I now see medication as like this three-legged stool, like therapy, 
coaching, Mm -hmm. and medication Mm -hmm. for managing your ADHD symptoms in a world that is not designed for you will make a meaningful impact. And it's so personal, the decision to go on medication. Mm -hmm. I understand. However, because we do think of like, oh, kids are over-medicated. There's all this, it's very similar to the HRT conversation, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's like there is research that was done like 20 years ago and we're still using it today as if it's still relevant. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think like the medication thing is like, you know, you can get so far with behavioral change, but you're always going to have a deficit of dopamine. Yeah. And because of that, you're going to make choices that aren't necessarily in your, the best interest of your ADHD management. You're going to mm-hmm. build habits that are not necessarily in the best interest of your ADHD management. Well, I think getting the help to get those tools specifically for adult ADHD, because I've looked for patients and what's available in my area, which is Calgary. We've got a large city here. We're over a billion people. But what's interesting is that it doesn't seem to be that there are a lot of resources for adult ADHD. It's for kids. Mm -hmm. So if anybody's listening to this podcast and says, great, I got the medication. It's really helpful. Now I want some of the tools. What do you recommend? Yeah. So I see, like, if you think of sort of an infinity circle, right? Like a skating loop, right? Like a figure eight. I see Think about yourself. I want everyone to kind of visualize themselves in the middle at that point where those two loops meet in a figure eight. And the way I see it is therapy is me going back into the past of that loop and learning where I was hurt, where I inter- where I picked up messages that I've internalized that are limiting who I can be today, and then bringing that back into the person you are today. Coaching um, and ADHD coaching in particular, although it tends to overlap, is about building, looking at your future self and building the habits that you can integrate into today and building the sort of thought patterns that you can integrate into your today so that you can be that person for yourself 20 years down the road. So if I am adverse to exercise, let's say, like, okay, so what was it? Like, did I have something in my childhood, like a bad dodgeball experience, or I didn't get picked for the team, and now I just, like, don't see myself as an exercise person? In the body I occupy today and in the mind I occupy today, what identity have I formed around that experience? And then going into, well, I know that 20 years from now, I'm almost 50, so I know by the time I'm 70, I would really like to have a body that isn't constantly in pain as much as I can control. You know, there will be hereditary factors and genetic factors. But do I want to do things today that will set my 70-year-old self up so that I physically can live the best life I possibly can. Mm-hmm. And you can do that with every aspect of your life, career, money, relationship, family, home. Um, and so that's where coaching comes in. And then what I find medication does is just calms your brain down enough that those things can integrate, that you integrate that enough knowledge and that awareness into who you are today Mm. Mm -hmm. because otherwise Mm. it's like we've all listened to a podcast we've all read a self-help book or watched a ted talk and we're like that's great what i love about coaching is it gives you the tools 
um, through daily or like at least a persistence over consistency for ADHD brains, like just to keep checking in with yourself and evaluating, like you do a annual review at work, but like, do you do an annual review on your life? And that's where I find coaching is really, ha- uh, like really powerful mm-hmm. and ADHD coaching can look like very specific strategies and habit building, you know, optimization, mm-hmm. or it can be more like life coaching. Like if we think about our future self and we start taking care of her now, like how powerful is that? Mm, so powerful. So, so powerful. I love that you've said that. Well, I think, um, you know, one of the things I've learned most uh, through the women that I work with in my practice is that at this time of life, we have to do the self-care things. We used to think it was cute. You know, oh, take mom needs to take a bubble bath and like nobody gets to interrupt her for an hour. Like we used to think that stuff was cute. And now it is a lifeline. Like when you get in as, and it goes way deeper than a bubble bath, but oh, yeah. a bath is a bath is great. Let's put that that way. Just don't yeah, don't take me great. wrong. It's great. You're not going to solve your burnout with a bubble bath. No, you know? you're not. You're not. <laughs> but these but these self care tools, etc., are really just so important. And I love that you said coaching is is where we get that information from. Sure, you had a health coach on recently, right? Like, so it can be like pick the thing in your life that you think will have a meaningful impact on how you show up for yourself every day Mm -hmm. and find someone who can support you through it. It could just be a friend. You know, we don't all have the resources to hire a coach, Mm -hmm. but you know, where can we lean on each other? Because the way the world is designed, we all believe we have to do it alone. The thing is like, no, I want everyone listening. You do not have to do it alone. We just have to be vulnerable enough and take that little like modicum of energy to reach out to someone else. And yeah. say, hey, I'm challenged with this. Can we yeah, go for a walk? I feel like women yeah. would solve all the world's problems with book clubs, potlucks, and power walks, right? Ooh, ooh, that sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we're, you know, we're coming to that. We're coming to go metaphysical for a second. We're inter- we've entered the age of Aquarius. This is where yes. we are. We're we're the communicate where the communities coming together. And if you plug that in with what you know the Dalai Lama says that that peace will come on the will come through the Western Western women. You've heard him say that. It's some I'm paraphrasing, but it's something Ooh, I like haven't, that. But I'm gonna go look that oh, up after. So good. Yes, he says uh peace will come through the women and um how else does he say it? anyways you get the idea just go ahead and google what what the dalai lama says about western women but we're we're really rising and we're seeing that in the way women's concerns and women's status and women's voices are being shown so much more so i want to say this when i when i was doing the review for the the literature review this week for uh-huh. this conversation um, what I found really interesting was the connection between fluctuations of estrogen with ADHD symptoms. 
And the way that looks is is different depending on where you are as a female in a female body uh, in your life, whether it's, you know, uh, adolescence, so puberty, whether it's your reproductive years, um, whether it's menopause. So let me break that down a little bit. But, but what we we understand is that women who have ADHD tend to have a worse experience of PMS and PMDD. And the reason why that is, is because we have estrogen declines right before we bleed. And that's when women tend to have the worst symptomatology of PMS, right? That's when PMS comes on. So it's a connection to dopamine. And of course, dopamine is sort of like the flag for ADHD, right? Like if we're talking about ADHD, we have to have the conversation about dopamine, which we have. Thank you today already. But what I found even more interesting was that women in menopause and perimenopause can have far more significant symptoms of their ADHD because of the egress of estrogen. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Wow. Like, yeah, like, oh, ADHD symptoms tend to be milder when you have estrogen in your body. And so you are sleeping better, you know, you're feeling better, you are able to anxious. you're less anxious. Um, And those mood changes in someone who has issues with emotional regulation to begin with, obviously exacerbated. Hello, I have a 16-year-old daughter. I love her very much. (laughs) So that was timely information, was it? Oh, yeah. Like, this is like, okay, thank you for saying that, Dr. (laughs) Lovely, because now I can take certain behaviors with a grain of salt, which I think I'm pretty good as a mom. But, um, you know, women struggle with memory, word retrieval, cognitive activities as their estrogen declines. Well, ADHD, people already have this. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the change in some people with uh, lowered estrogen, you know, sometimes you've probably had people come into your office and wonder if they uh, have Alzheimer's, for example. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Brain fog is a big one. Big one. Brain fog is a big one. COVID didn't help with that. We know lower levels of estrogen cause mood disorders, and we've talked about this a bit already, but like mood disorders for someone who has emotional regulation difficulty, it it's all exacerbated. And unfortunately, you know, your medication might not work as well mm-hmm. when you're experiencing either PMS, PMDD, or um, perimenopause or, or menopause. Perimenopause and yep. menopause. Yeah, yep. exactly. Yep. So it's... Well- and you know what's really interesting? What you've just said, we have brand new research that came out this Monday Ooh. that's, yes, that talks about the mood uh, disorders, et cetera. That it's kind of a funny term. The, the literature says mental illness, and I don't, I think that's not a great term, but we're dealing with dinosaur terminology in yeah. medicine across the board. So we're just going to run with it so that people can look it up. But it's basically that, you know, we have these mood regulation issues that come up between 35 and 55, and that women are typically then given an antidepressant or anti-anxiety medication and not given any further tools on that. But how did those women do? And wasn't it interesting that those symptoms in those years are also very much overlaid with the symptomatology that we have in perimenopause. And the treatment for it is, number one, 
uh, hormonal optimization. So looking and seeing which of the hormones do we need to get more of or be mindful of, and then adding in potentially uh, one of the medications, whether it's the ADHD medications, the antidepressants, the anti-anxiety medications. And then the third thing, just like you just said with the, the third leg, is the lifestyle modifications, right? Right. But you know, the thing is a lot of women are going to their doctors for the lifestyle modifications, but you don't take your Maserati to the Ford dealership. You got to go to the Maserati dealership. Ford will say, well, you know, it's got four doors and four wheels and then it's got, you know, whatever. It's got this, it's got an engine. Sure. I can fix it. Right. But the truth is to get that fine tuning Yes. of a fine automobile, which your body is, yeah. you have to go to the right expert. This is the coaching thing. Oh, wow. Thank you for that metaphor. And I think metaphors and, you know, I built a career on storytelling. So being able to give someone such a visual, you know, tangible way to compare one to the next is just phenomenal. So thank yeah. you. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Coaching, what it does is essentially helps you to start thinking about your future self. And actually, coaching is very much like we're not concerned with the past. I am a journalist, so I love excavating the past. But really, if you're able to, you know, calm your nervous system enough, and nervous system regulation is so huge here, so oh, yeah. huge. Yeah. We didn't talk about that. But if you are able to calm your nervous system enough, you mm-hmm. will be able to open your sort of visioning eye to the future and then mm-hmm. start making small. It's about incremental small change. It's and the on ADHD folks, I'm talking to you. You're thinking I'm going to wake up tomorrow at 6 a.m. and I'm going to meditate and I'm going to journal and I'm going to do some yoga and, da, 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 and all these things before anyone's even up and I have to be at work. And that you you are setting yourself up for failure. You know, yeah. for me, it was start by making your bed every day. Mm-hmm. do that for six weeks. Do you have it? Okay, great. Now we're going to add another layer in coaching helps you to see you cannot yes. take two trips at once. No. Um, and you know, I think it's a very much an ADHD thing. We want to do all the things. Yes. You can't do all the things. It's really hard to accept because you have a very fast brain. Yes. <laughs> so, and I find it hilarious that, you know, I have to take a methamphetamine to slow my fast brain down or calm it down. Oh, okay. Right. Um, it's so weird, but okay. That's what my brain needs. I'm not going to judge it. Right. No. And so no. the more we can do to <clears throat> a, not be so judgmental <laughs> of mm. ourselves and others mm-hmm. and really calm that nervous system down, the more we can do to start like building that future and having a coach to support you incrementally mm-hmm. and say, Hey, I know you want to start a podcast and write a novel, <laughs> but maybe let's pick one is <laughs> usually helpful. Mm-hmm. And then keeping you accountable with check-ins and things like that. Um, a lot of coaches do group coaching. I was part of a, a group coaching program that still exists. Um, called Kickstartology. I stepped away this fall because I really want to write a book Mm -hmm. and you know, everything that gets my time, that's not writing, sitting down and writing Mm -hmm. is, uh, is, is blocking my goal. And Mm -hmm. I have choice. That's another thing. I want you all to recognize how much choice you have in your outcomes, especially Mm -hmm. now as women in the West, as you said, we, most people listening to this will have a decent amount of, of privilege, 
um, and access to lots of different things that, you know, they don't have in other parts of the world. Like we have so much power and coaching helps you to uncover that power, tap into your desire, which as women, we tend to, um, we're not used to it. We're thinking about what everyone else wants and how everybody else feels rather than recognizing that it's okay to want things for ourselves. And mm -hmm. I see this very much in that you said 35 to 55. That is the women I coach because that is the point in life where you have, you're, you're, you know, women come to me and they're like, I have ticked all the boxes. I have the kid and I can speak from my own experience. I have the kids, the house, the mm -hmm. car, the job, you know, the husband. Da, da, mm -hmm. da, da, da. Why do I feel so Happy. Yeah. Why? Why am I not happy? Why am I sad? Why do is I have anger? Is? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So that disconnection and disassociation is also a symptom. We're just learning, really, um, we're really acutely learning this now. That that is a symptom of the estrogen egress as well. Mm. Okay. So, and actually, I think it's really powerful for us to talk about how disconnected we can feel from everything that we have ever associated ourselves with our, our passionate career careers we're passionate about maybe hobbies or things we do on the weekends that we're excited about that we're no longer excited about our connections to our families to our primary relationships to all of the things we've always anchored ourselves with can all of a sudden no longer feel you just don't have the same connection to them or um, you cannot access pleasure. That's another symptom Oof. on that list. I know, I know it's called an anhydronia, I think is the term. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Please forgive me if I have mispronounced that, but I believe that's the term. So um, that is, again, one of those things that you want to look at. I mean, this is women in 35 to 55. The closer I've gotten to that 55 mark, I turned 50 this summer, um, the more I connect with that, the more I go, and like I'm like you, I'm super passionate about my work. Thankfully, I'm still super passionate about my work, but <laughs> some of the other things, less so. I'm like, no, I can let that go. Yeah. You know, that's okay. I can let that go. And it I think that's good. good. It, yeah. it is. It is. But we need to make sure we're still be, being able to access joy Mm -hmm. And to have my favorite, I think my favorite self-care technique and what I teach uh, regularly is the deliberate pursuit of pleasure. Yep. 100%. And that's, a, it's a moving target, right? What makes, uh, my husband and I were talking about this this morning, what we experienced as pleasure 20 years ago is so different than it is now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I think it's easy for us as women to go, Oh, it's just pleasure. Who cares? I'll just put that aside. Uh-uh. Right. Like, I'm tired. Exactly. We're literally pleasure-seeking creatures. I mean, he, women have a whole um, pleasure anatomy that really yeah, we're just starting to learn. Yeah. Yes. Yes, we do. And this is sure I'm talking about now in in the in the in the realm of sexuality and and sure. women's sexuality and and uh, uh, etc. But I mean, we're we're hardwired for it. So even if I'm not talking about an orgasm, I'm talking about on a daily basis, what is that deliberate pursuit of pleasure for you? I think that's so important. Oh, I think it's so important. And you know, a lot of social activists talk about the about pleasure and joy 
being acts of resistance, that the pursuit of them. Yeah. And you know, if you need a decision tree to figure out what you're letting go of on your to-do list, that is way too huge. All of you having pleasure and joy as your North stars, you're going to start living a happier life, right? Like, and pleasure can be, gosh, do you remember when you were, for those who uh, have experienced being pregnant, like eating a cold soft serve on a hot day or like whatever it was for you. Like it doesn't have to be sexual. Mm-hmm. And we can recognize that, you know, I think the hardest thing about any discussion about mental health, about perimenopause and menopause and changes to women at this age is that it's also the busiest time of our lives. We're taking care of parents. We're taking care of children. Maybe those children like me are experiencing their own hormonal issues and God, it's (laughs) hell on earth some days. Love you. But you know, it's like, and there's no systems to support us. So we're, Mm -hmm. the fact that we're having this conversation at all is amazing and is the first step, Mm -hmm. but then it's a, so what now? So what do we do? Do we have energy for advocacy? Do we have energy in the in the, you know, environments that we have some influence over to start bringing forward these conversations? And it can be as simple as like, you know, I work, uh, I spend my days at a tech company doing all their writing, and there's a crew of us who are like the Gen X women. And it was like, I remember seeing my colleague Lisa, early when she started, she had a jean jacket. I had a jean jacket. I feel like the jean jacket is like such a Gen X woman thing. Oh, yeah, it we is. We love our <laughs> jean jackets with buttons. And, uh-huh. you know, um, it, we started a little club because it's like we work in an industry that happens to have a lot of young people, right? So it's like yeah. those of us with older kids and hormonal issues at work, we have a little collective and just being able to laugh about it or talk mm-hmm. about it or be able to say, find your person or your people to say, mm-hmm. I'm having a hard day. ADHD is a lot like perimenopause in that you might not feel the symptoms all the time. I have good ADHD day days and bad ADHD days. And I like to think of it as something that's happening to me that's a temporary state um, rather than my whole identity, which sometimes I can get into. Labels can be sometimes harmful as well as helpful. So just Mm -hmm. like, where are you using it as an excuse to Mm -hmm. not do something you're avoiding? Mm -hmm. And where are you, you know, maybe you're just having a bad ADHD day or a bad perimenopause day. And then so what now? You know, what do you have to do for yourself? Because we all have all these people relying on us as women. And so you Mm -hmm. can't be good to anyone else, you know, uh, until you're good to yourself. We hear that all the time. You know, the RuPaul, like, Mm -hmm. you don't love yourself. How the hell are you going to love somebody (laughs) else? Like, gosh, I love that. Um, Yeah. Sorry, drag queen fan here. No, it's all good. I love it. I, I I am just adoring the the perfect drag queen uh, joke reference. It's perfect. It's perfect. So <laughs> this is actually a really good place for us to sort of start to wrap up our wrap conversation. Up. Yeah. Sure. And based on what you just said, I want to ask the question, if someone's listening and they think they may have ADHD or they know they have ADHD, Can you give us, let's say, what's your top tip for starting to control some of the emotional things, some of the overdoing things? Like what, what is your, what, what would you like us to know about what can be really helpful? Yeah, I think the free things or the low cost things are, are probably the most effective, you know, 
Um, one of my favorite sayings is, uh, you know, it's solved by walking. It's like an old St. Augustine quote um, Love it. in Latin, solvitur ambulando. It is solved by walking, you know, like, do you need a walk? Start asking yourself questions. I think that's the free thing, you know? So what now? Do I need a walk? Do I need a glass of water? And ADHD people are terrible at remembering to eat and drink and all those things. Like, it's just like you are because you're so disconnected so anything you can do that brings you back into your body as someone with a very active brain is the fastest path people say meditation meditation can be really difficult for adhd brains so what is the other thing is it taking a dance class or putting on a song and just like you know moving a little bit is it going for a walk is it um if if I mean, meditation really helps to learn that you are not your thoughts, right? That your thoughts are kind of like clouds passing through your Mm -hmm. sky. So if you can do a guided meditation, you know, there's so many apps right now that have low cost or free uh, helpful ways just to start observing your mind, which Mm -hmm. is such a huge game changer. Mm -hmm. And just realizing we're all human, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, someone cuts you off in the street, your, uh, you know, your instinct might be to say a hole about that guy. I'm mm-hmm. really trying not to swear it, which is a win. Thank you, medication. Um, but at least there's know, one of us, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it goes, just taking that beat to say human, I'm yeah. human, we're all complicated and the world is not designed right now to remind us that we have these animal bodies that are also complex pieces of machinery that need looking after. Mm -hmm. So taking that beat to do some sort of mindful activity, it could even be like just practicing, like I'm washing the dishes. Am I here with the dishes or am I off? Like, you know, thinking about my RRSPs or something like that, right? (laughs) Prioritizing pleasure and joy. You said that is a great framework. Like, going, what lights me up? Because we Mm. get to midlife and we're doing all these things for everyone. What lights you up? What lit you up when you were younger? We forget. Yeah, We forget. And often in those things that bring us joy and pleasure, there's community, which we really need because it's not about self-care. It's actually about community care Mm -hmm. in the big picture, right? It's Mm -hmm. how do we all take care of each other? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Those are my low cost, you know, doing something physical, dropping into the body. That is always a good method, finding ways to quiet the mind. And sometimes when you're doing boring mundane tasks, like you have to fold your laundry and there's a laundry mountain, having an audio book or a podcast. So the busy part of your brain is active over here while the physical part of your brain is kind of, you know, folding things neatly or washing a dish that can make a big difference too. Yeah. So just, and then just, paying attention, like any sort of presence practice, like your, your mind, all of our brains, but especially in a neurodiverse brain is like the toddler at the dinner table, right? If I think back to my kid, he was probably, you know, wandering off mid bite and going to play with his Legos. And I would have to say like, Hey buddy, it's dinner time. Like, let's come back to this. Where can you catch and redirect Mm -hmm. when you see your toddler brain wandering off? And be gentle and kind. We're so used to being like, no, you need to do your taxes now. It's like, mm-hmm. no, like, hey, we're doing our taxes now. Yeah. And it's okay. And it's worthwhile because you're going to get money back from the government. <laughs> you know? Like, what's that to like? Why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tying every want to a why. Yeah. Yeah. I love why it. Why does this I love matter? It. Is it a should? 
or that's like a whole other topic. We could do a whole other yes. coaching and neuroscience <laughs> conversation, but you know, is it a shut? Is it yeah. someone else's expectations of you as someone in a female body or is it something you actually want? Yeah. Wow. Well, this is so useful. I think that this conversation is really going to help a lot of women who are struggling with their focus, with their concentration. And that brain fog thing, sometimes it's just a matter of like, where did that come from? Well, maybe it's something that's been underdiagnosed. By the way, I did find that women were most likely to be diagnosed between the ages of 36 and 38 if they weren't caught as children. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, Yeah. sure. Yeah, really interesting. So, and typically it's because they had a child that was diagnosed or somewhere on the the spectrum. most common. I will say if you had a report card like me, you mentioned your report card. My report card was always like about table talk and Nadine's disrupting people in class with her chitter chatter. You know, I would help other people do their homework before I did my own. Like if any of that sounds like you, go have a conversation with a healthcare professional. Oh, yeah. And that's good girl behavior that we would have been rewarded for when we were kids as Gen Xers. 100%. And so this is the book that I'm working on now. I'm working on a memoir, uh, which is how you and I met. I'm working on a memoir talking about all the the stories and expectations and identities were handed when we're born into a female body. Um, and, And probably as people become adults, not exclusively to uh, female born people, but anyone who identifies as a woman, what happens? And then those stories, like how we can rewrite them, how we can unpack beautiful to give us our power back. Yes. And that is, those are lessons we absolutely need. And please, would you consider coming back on the podcast when the book is ready to be released? 100%. I love talking with you, Fiona. Thank you so much for having me. I've shared your podcast with so many women because I find my dinner parties now are like, okay, well, what are you experiencing? Are you sweating at night? Do you you have a dry vagina too? It's going to pop off. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I know. These these things are often talked about, but let me ask you the final question I love to ask all my guests, which is knowing what you know now, what would you tell your younger self? such a powerful, powerful thing. And it's just like, you are not bad. You are not stupid. You are not not enough. Like you are enough and you are, you're good enough. You're smart enough. You know, like it sounds like Viola Davis is saying it, but like really we are, we're just, we're born perfect. And, you know, just like, I love you little Nadine. It's okay it's okay. It's just someone else didn't like it or didn't like that. You didn't do that or, or whatnot. Oh, yeah. That's, that enough. touches me. That you're touches me. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, if people want to know more about you. Yeah, how do they find absolutely. It? How do they find you? Um, you can probably search Nadina Raksi in Google and either find my Instagram or my, you know, my various platforms. I do have a Substack newsletter that I send out and I'm working on nadinaraksi.com right now. So hopefully by the time this comes out, that'll be up and running for everyone to find me and, and learn how they can work with me if they want. I love it. I love it. I've so enjoyed this conversation, Nadine. Thank, Thank you for coming. The views and nutritional advice expressed by Dr. Fiona Lovely are not intended to be a substitute for conventional medical service. 
If you have or suspect that you have a medical problem, promptly contact your health care provider. No information offered here should be interpreted as a diagnosis of any disease, nor an attempt to treat or prevent or cure any disease or condition. As with any new advice or program, you should always contact your health care provider prior to starting anything new. Thank you.